Hey there, here's a quick note. This podcast contains general financial advice only. That means it's not specific to you, your needs, goals, or objectives. So don't act on the information until you've spoken with your financial advisor. You'll find our full disclosure, disclaimer, and link to our financial services guide in the show notes. In investing, we often talk about biases and we talk about all of the different concepts around how to manage them. These mental models like circle of competence, lattice work, and so on and so forth. If you follow Charlie Munger's work or if you've read or listened to his speeches over the years, the psychology of human misjudgment is quite frankly brilliant and one of my favorite. You will know that the human mind, even the sharpest human mind, succumbs to some of these biases from time to time. Daniel Kahneman, who is the author of Thinking Fast and Slow, would say that being aware of them is probably the most important step. And then from there, we can begin to understand them. And if we can understand them, we may know when they're impacting our ability to think more clearly. For me, I know when I come across an investor who has clearly not thought about their biases. You see them all the time online or in person. They are completely emotional. But no matter what amount of frustration, optimism, greed, pain or despair you might have, whether a stock rises or falls has no bearing on your emotions. And I think the sooner that you grasp that, the more humility that you bring to your investing, the better your investing will be. In this podcast, I'm going to talk about a few of the biases that afflict people, or at least the ways that our mind can lead us to misjudgment. This is not a comprehensive toolkit. It is not a library of biases. It's just an introduction to the idea of biases and how they afflict our thinking. The first one is linear thinking. Nine times out of 10, when I review a valuation model, like a discounted cash flow analysis, the investor has created a model that uses a left to right formula. So they might take last year's revenue, then they multiply it by one plus a growth rate to get to this year's revenue. Then they use this year's revenue plus a growth rate next year, and so on and so forth. For example, if last year's revenue was $100, the growth rate is 10%, this year's revenue would be $110. Most often, an analyst drags and copies a formula from left to right for three, five, or ten years, or however long their forecast might be. And if you have 10% growth over, say, ten years, you might end up with around about $260 of revenue. Now, while this is okay, and I tend to do this all the time too, I always ask investors to focus on the absolute number, in this case, of revenue. So not just the growth rate, a constant growth rate. You see, the thing is, if I forecast 10% growth for the next 10 years, some people might think, well, that's like 100% growth. But anyone who understands the power of compounding knows that that's not true. When I ask investors to focus on the change in absolute numbers, oftentimes their first reaction is, oh, that's too fast. And then they try and moderate it. But when it's expressed as a percentage, like a flat percentage rate from this year through to 10 years at 10%, they think, oh, it's only 10%. In a spreadsheet, left, right, up, down makes sense. But linear growth is easy for our brains to think. However, in the real world, almost nothing is linear. There are very few straight lines in nature, and it's the same for companies. Yet this is what we forecast in our models. Why is that? The answer is because it's easy. Nonlinear and exponential growth is actually incredibly hard. The author and investor, Michael Batnick, describes or demonstrates the complexity of thinking in exponential or nonlinear terms, and he 
suggests, and I'll quote, anyone can solve the equation 6 plus 6 plus 6, but ask someone to calculate 6 times 6 times 6 times 6 without a machine and they're going to look at you cross-eyed. The human brain was designed for linear, not exponential processing. Now, this has implications for both active and passive investors. For index or passive investors, the reason low-cost investing works so well is because it lets you keep compounding while avoiding detracting from that number 6 as you compound. For example, 6 times 6 times 6 times 6 is 1,296. But 5 times 5 times 5 times 5 is only 625. So it's less than half. There's that quote from Charlie Munger, compounding is very powerful, don't interrupt it. For active investors, people who pick individual shares, there are many different implications. 23 years ago, if you were forecasting a mature blue chip company like a railroad or a supermarket, linear thinking may have been a decent approximation of what might happen in the future. You know, these were stable businesses slowly lifting prices and increasing their store counts. But how about a growth company or a modern blue chip company like, say, Microsoft? Microsoft started as an operating system and a play on desktop computing via its software-first strategy. Then it moved into servers, browsers, office applications, computing languages, gaming, mobile, cloud computing, social media. Now, this goes on. On occasion, when Microsoft expanded into an adjacency, its total addressable market, or TAM, grew multiple times over. There are stories of this playing out time and again. For example, even the most wildly bullish analyst estimates of companies like Amazon in the 2000s drastically underestimated what would happen. Of course, Amazon, you're probably thinking, is an exception. But if you're targeting the outliers in the stock market, you know that 2 to 5% of stocks that actually create wealth over treasury bonds, or simply those in a key period of inflection or growth, you need to understand nonlinear growth rates. A way to combat this tendency is to chart your growth rates and to remove the fixed percentage growth rates you use in your valuation models. The next one that I want to talk about is confirmation bias. Confirmation bias is our tendency to overweight evidence, people, or news that confirm what we already believe. At least once a day when I check my Twitter feed, I see a tweet from someone and I think to myself, oh my, that person is totally wrong. But then my next emotion is the powerful one. I think to myself, I feel extremely compelled to click unfollow. However, I always choose to keep following them. So why is that? A personal Twitter or social media feed is basically one big confirmation bias machine. If I unfollowed everyone who I disagreed with, I'd be overweighting everything and everyone that doesn't fit my narrow view of the world. But if we accept that our own emotions have no sustainable impact on stock prices, which they don't, satisfying our own emotions has really no tangible benefit. Investor Peter Pan, who appeared on this podcast series, used the analogy that struck with me, and I'll try and paraphrase it. He said something to the effect of, even if you remembered everything you hear and see, you'll only know a tiny fraction of what the world knows. Yet we think our beliefs overlap narrowly with the addressable evidence in the world. Two ways I see this playing out in investing are as follows. Number one, 
Those who join online stock forums or groups tend to seek out confirming evidence. Number two, investors often play follow the leader. They take another person's opinion or a position in a company as their own position. But as the saying goes, you can't borrow someone else's conviction. The easiest way I've found to combat confirmation bias is to invert. As Charlie Mung would say, always invert. Before I or the Rust team make an investment or a recommendation, we must write down our thesis. And in that thesis, there must be a section on the known risks. Put simply, just ask yourself, what sucks? That's a term from Josh Wolf, the venture capitalist. What sucks about this investment and what could go wrong? Recency bias. Recency bias is pretty self-explanatory. It's when we take something that's happened recently in the past as a reasonable basis for what might happen in the future. For the most part, this makes sense because rather than coming up with a completely random number for Amazon's revenue next year, we take what has happened in the past 12 months and we use that as a basis or a base for our prediction into the future. I've seen recency bias charts where Some news outlets have plotted the stock price of a company. And just when a company reaches its peak stock price, looking back in time, analyst estimates shoot off into the sky. And then as the stock falls, they shoot straight down into the ground. And then as the stock price starts to plateau out and come back to stability, they fire a stock price straight out into the future and it looks flat. At every one point in time, you can see recency bias in action. Those analysts are basically taking the momentum or recent information as what might happen in the future. The thing is, using last year's numbers is not perfect. And I find it's most pronounced in analyst forecasts for things such as valuations. Because our models tend to rely on analyst view from the last 12 months and the growth rate from the last 12 months. And then we infer that for one, three, five, or 10 years out into the future. In my experience, there is a genuine mismatch between investor expectations and company reporting. We expect companies to report results quarterly, and we expect them to deliver on our thesis every half year or year, yet we plan to invest for many years. So we call ourselves long-term investors, but we judge performance based on months. For investors, one way to recognize this bias in action is to take that longer-term view. While I might track them, I do not forecast company results quarter to quarter for this reason. Moreover, I try to run scenarios that take into account different potential situations that might occur in the future. Loss aversion. Loss aversion is a famous study that suggests humans feel the pain of loss about twice as much as the joy of gain. If you make $10 versus losing $10, you'll know what I mean. After buying listed investment companies or LICs at 60 cents for every dollar of net assets during the global financial crisis, Tony Hansen, who's the chief investment officer of EGP Capital, once told me on this podcast, there are people who run towards the fire and those that run away. Everyone reacts differently to loss. For me, if a stock or an ETF I own falls 20%, I wouldn't mind that at all. And I think there are a few reasons for that. I have a decent understanding of how the market works and my financial goals are strictly long-term. If you are listening to this, it's important that you study the long-term historical returns of markets and set longer-term goals to match that. If you do that, I think you too will begin to see that sell-offs are an opportunity, not necessarily a reason to run away. News and information. If you imagine a big bubble or a big circle in front of you, whether it's on your table or just in front of you where you are right now. Imagine you have a big circle like the size of a dinner plate 
And then you take, say, like a tiny little circle, like, I don't know, the end of a pencil, and you drew a circle around that on your plate. That would be the amount of news that actually matters, or the amount of information that actually matters to your long-term investing versus the size of all the information that's available to you. It's really important that when you think about where you get your information source, you ask yourself, is this information source credible? Does it relate to my long-term investing or does it impact my company? Because what actually matters is only a tiny sliver of the news and attention grabbing information that's available to us. Oftentimes, almost all of the news that we hear is designed to make us fight or flight. We enter that mode. Reacting to this information is often a mistake because the most common information does not necessarily relate to what we have to do here and now for the long-term benefit. The news or analysis that actually requires you to take action is incredibly rare. As Morgan Housel once said, 99% of long-term investing is doing nothing, yet it's the other 1% that changes your life. Jason Zweig who's the fantastic author and columnist at the Wall Street Journal, once said that he's paid an annual salary to write the same thing 200 different ways every year. The point is that good things don't change all that often. This is something that was echoed in Hans Rosling's book, Factfulness. In fact, in Zweig's footnotes to The Intelligent Investor, you will remember that book, it was written by Ben Graham, It's one of the kind of seminal works on intelligent investing and value investing, yet it is probably so outdated that not much of it is usable today. The book was republished with commentary from Zweig. He would do footnotes at the end of the book's chapters and so on and so forth. When I first read this book, one of the statements that jumped out to me, and this is just from Zweig, who was a columnist, he said, Something to the effect of, I created a simple rule that when a share falls 5% in a day, I wouldn't sell. And when it rises 5% in a day, I won't buy. It's a simple rule to deflect the myopic and short-term tendencies that come with news and information. One way to counteract the impact of excessive information is to understand the source of the information. Who was it? What did they say? And why did they say it? These are really, really important considerations for everyone. I won't go into them today, but for most investors who are taking the investor bootcamp, it's really important to understand that there are ways of dealing with these biases. There are many other biases than those that I've mentioned here. Charlie Munger has introduced this idea of a latticework of mental models. Mental models are the tools, methods, and strategies that help us understand the world by connecting knowledge and information from distinct disciplines. For decades, it would seem that investing has been taught as somewhat of a derivation of mathematics. If you're good at maths, you're a good investor. There are an extreme few, however, for whom that approach would work. Jim Simons comes to mind. But the best investors I have met do not have to double as a CIO code cracker or mathematician, as Jim Simons once did. Charlie Munger describes it as a latticework of mental models, upon which you use your experiences and those gleaned from others to create worldly wisdom. The book Investing the Last Liberal Art, which was recommended by Claude Walker to me and on this show, is by far the most relatable and concise attempt at illustrating many of these points. The chapter on biology was the one that resonated with me the most. 
Then I would direct your attention to websites like the Farnham Street blog written by Shane Parrish, which houses and expands on a library of mental models. If you have ever seen Munger and Buffett at an annual shareholder meeting, you will see mental models at work. During question and answer time, Buffett will give an answer that seems straightforward and logical, whereas Munger might begin by talking about Shakespeare or Darwinism, yet his answer might have something that makes more sense than Buffett's answer about banking. In this podcast, we've barely even scratched the surface of this concept of mental models and biases. So instead of going on, I'll keep this short and direct your attention to a few resources. The first is the book Investing the Last Liberal Art. There's a link in the Investor Bootcamp training material. The second is the book Influence, The Psychology of Persuasion by Robert Cialdini. It's a book about marketing, but it's incredible how our minds can be manipulated. Poor Charlie's Almanac is a book that is highly recommended amongst both investors and non-investors for its insights into the way the human mind works and the way biases operate and take a hold of us. In fact, Charlie Munger's speech, The Psychology of Human Misjudgment, is by far one of the best and most profound I've ever heard. My first or second listening of that speech is, I think it was lost on me, but now it makes so much sense. And finally, the Farnham Street blog run by Shane Parrish. He's also got a podcast, The Knowledge Project, which you should listen to. It's almost required reading where I come from. My hope from this podcast is that you can at least attempt to tackle some of these concepts and understand your biases. You can use things like checklists and all different types of strategies to understand and get a hold of the biases that might afflict you. Because the sooner you can begin building your own lattice work, the better your investing will be. I think these concepts are more important than Warren Buffett's letters. That's why in a cheeky tweet the other day, I asked what was more important, understanding Munger's worldly wisdom or reading Warren Buffett's letters. For me, it's Charlie Munger's worldly wisdom. And there are so many great resources that I've just mentioned that outline how you can get a handle on that as a new and aspiring investor. So that's the end of this podcast. I hope you like it. It's an extract from the Value Investor Program. Thanks for listening to the Investor Bootcamp mini-series. We have a bunch of interesting topics left in the series, including small cap investing and a few other things that will tickle your fancy over the next couple of weeks. We're almost at the end. We've got three more episodes to go after this. As always, if you have any questions, be sure to reach out to me at Owen Rask on Twitter or use the link in your podcast player to access the Investor Bootcamp training material and manual. It is all free and available to you. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Australian Investors Podcast.